this morning, I hope to lay a little groundwork for our discussion in Sunday school, actually, which starts next week. And if you need more incentive, uh, I'd like you to remember that if you attend the class, there's a possibility you might get to sit next to Chris Kelly. Just <laughs> put that out there. Well worth the price of admission. Well worth the price of admission. Here's some of the things we hope to discuss in Sunday school. Questions to answer. How do we, the church, see ourselves in this world? Do we feel comfortable here? Do we feel at home? Do we expect things to go well? Should we feel or expect any of those things? Are we uncomfortable with what's going on around us? Are we angry about what we see and hear in this world? What are we to do? By the way, I had to learn this. I've had a little trouble with anger over the years. It's okay to be angry. God gets angry. Scripture tells us be angry but do not sin. God's anger motivates him to send Jesus to the cross so that we may be saved. So God's anger always leads toward righteousness. So we need to keep that in mind. Don't let our anger get away from us. Remember, it's meant to motivate us toward righteousness. Questions like, how are we to respond to people who identify as LGBTQ? How do we do that? How do we respond to the racial tensions in our society? What's the best way to influence our society? I'll give you a hint. It's not the ballot box. Vote, but don't put your hope in it. God is sovereign. He's allowing these things. He's not surprised by anything. And God intends to use us in the midst of these circumstances as he accomplishes his plan. question is, what's our part? How are we to think about this world in which we live? This morning, I hope we'll gain some perspective and lay a foundation, as I said, for discussion. I've said that a couple times now. This Sunday school class is going to be interactive, all right? Discussion as we seek to spur one another on to love and good deeds, which is one of the reasons we come together, right? First, we need to remember that God is sovereign and God's purposes will prevail. So you may find yourself in some circumstances where that doesn't seem to be the case, but it is true. It is always true. We don't stay here very long. Even if you live to be 100 compared to eternity, it's a flash. This world, things don't work. Not the way they're supposed to. Suffering is real. Sickness and death are a part of life. Evil seems to run rampant. We have to remember that our hope must be in our sovereign God and His promises because His will is done. Second, we need to know that God's image bearers, we are God's image bearers, and we're meant to represent God on this earth. He has commissioned us to continue the work of Jesus Christ. That's a pretty serious charge. Continue the work of Jesus Christ. We're supposed to disciple as we go along in life. It's supposed to naturally flow out of us, right? Not some scripted thing you do with somebody. Naturally flow out of us in day-to-day -day life. Baptize, teach those whom God has called. This is why we're here. It's our primary purpose. And we're to do it as we go along in everyday life. Third, we need to cling to Jesus. All the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We need to live in the certain hope of His return. 
and our certain resurrection to glory. This world is not the final reality. Reality is God and what He has said about us and about our eternal future. Fourth, we need to do this together. We need to do this together. We're the body of Christ and we need one another as we walk along as exiles in the wilderness filled with danger where we live fearlessly because we know we're in a place God has sent us and that He is with us. We're here to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever God calls us to do. So when we think about missionaries, like the doors we just prayed for, right? We have missionaries all over the world, right? It's a faraway place. Boy, it's easy to think about that place as uncomfortable and a wilderness. Unreached people that need to hear the gospel. That's, that's something we get behind and we should, right? People here willingly, uh, joyfully praying, giving financially so that these missionary families can go where they feel God has called them to go and bring the gospel to unreached people. And they've spent years learning how to do that, learn a different culture, a different language, to reach the unreached in a place that is truly foreign and uncomfortable. The question for us this morning is, do we see ourselves that way here in Pensacola? There's a desperate need for the gospel right here. There are different cultures right here in Pensacola. Over the years, quite honestly, I've found it easier to relate to Christian military officers in Ghana or Cameroon or Uganda than I do with some people I've met right here in the United States. There's a lot of, a lot of different folks around. Some of you know our son, Jonathan. Last four or five years, he's maybe not made the best choices. It is getting better, though. Praise God. Unfortunately, he's learning most of it through the School of Hard Knocks, but, but he is learning. So you can pray for him, right? In the last several years, he's run with a circle of friends, not all of them, but some of them, who are a little tough to be around. So to be honest, when he would bring them by, because he would, I really had not much interest. But God's Holy Spirit convicted me that you're missing out on a... Uh, opportunity here to reach into a foreign culture you know they think and their life the way they think their life priorities are totally different speak the same language though so i don't have to learn a new language that's good <laughs> so michelle and i set some ground rules and we work to relate to these folks to understand they're struggling to make their way in this broken world and in many cases they grew up in very broken families you find that out when you get to know them. So we help them with a place to stay. We've helped them with food and money. And we share the gospel message. Because we have the right. I don't know if you call it a right, but we have the opportunity because of the interaction with them. We're choosing to see them as image bearers who God wants to reconcile to himself. So that doesn't make it easy. That doesn't make it comfortable although it gets a little easier and a little comfortable. So I'm not up here telling you this story. You can say, oh, you guys are awesome. No, not really. <laughs> not really. All right? And we haven't seen much fruit, quite frankly. But absolutely convinced that that, rather than stiff-arming them, <laughs> that that is how God wants us 
to do. We should be sending people around the world with the gospel message to unreached people. And we should see ourselves called and sent to bring that same message with us every day right here in this wilderness that we know as Pensacola. So Pastor Brett recently took us through Exodus. We saw Israel subjected to slavery in Egypt, just as we're subjected to slavery and sin. And we saw God send Israel a deliverer, Moses, just as he sent a deliverer for us all, Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the law that was brought through Moses. We saw God prepare a place in the wilderness for his people. Right? Their sandals and clothes didn't wear out. He brought them manna. He brought them water from a rock. Um, just like God has prepared a place for us and work for us and is always with us. And we know that from Ephesians 2.10. We're created to walk in the works that God has uh, put in front of us. Right? Predestined is already in his mind. In Matthew 28.20 that tells us at the end that he is with us always. So even though circumstances may make it seem like he's not, he is always. The final stop in Exodus was the promised land, which they could only enter in humble obedience to God. And we know that from the Exodus story and from Hebrews 4, 6. The final stop for us is the wedding feast of the Lamb and the new heaven and earth, which we will enter only by faith. And that faith will be evidenced by our humble obedience to God. Apostle Paul writes in Romans 15, 4, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So this morning we'll see how Revelation is a part of that story and that it's best understood in the context of the canon of Scripture. But Exodus provides a great framework for understanding what we see in Revelation. Revelation 12 gives us a very concise picture of the spiritual reality that surrounds us and shows us that God has indeed placed us in a wilderness and is here with us to do what He has prepared for us to do. So let's dive into Revelation 12. I'm going to read a couple verses at a time and sort of talk about them a little and then uh, we'll uh, see where that takes us. Verse 1 and 2. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant, cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. So you have to ask yourself, who's the woman? You look back in Genesis 37, and you read about this fellow named Joseph who has these dreams. One of the dreams he has is that the sun and the moon and eleven stars bow down to him. And he relates that dream to his father Jacob, who immediately rebukes him and says, do you think that myself, your mother, and your brothers are going to bow down before you? So Jacob knew immediately that the sun, the moon, and the stars represented Israel. And that's the picture that's being brought to us here in Revelation 12. There's 12 stars here because Joseph has the dream. He's one of the stars. So only 11 were bowing down to him. And we see how these Old and New Testament work together. Israel is the nation through whom God brought the Messiah and in prophecy also represents all of God's people, including us. For we are by faith Abraham's descendants. Romans 4.16, Galatians 3.6-9. to 
The woman is experiencing labor pains and will soon give birth. Think of the pain we read about in the Scripture across the generations from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David to Jesus as God prepared the scene for the Messiah to be born at just the right time. Galatians 4.4 4. Labor pains. Verses 3 to 4. <clears throat> then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky, flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. The dragon represents complete evil. Those numbers 7, 10 are numbers of completeness. In this case, complete uh, evil. The horns represent power. The crowns represent authority. Authority that God allows the dragon to have and is in complete control or sovereign over. A few weeks ago, Pastor Brett mentioned Herod's, uh, King Herod slaughtering all the children in Bethlehem, two years old and younger. That's an example of Satan, this dragon, trying to devour the child. He's using an evil king to do that. He's not successful. We know from Scripture the dragon is defeated by this child, who is sometimes referred to as the skull crusher. That comes out of Genesis 3.15, the first prophecy of Jesus. And Colossians 2.15 tells us, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And that word triumphing is meant to bring to mind, and it would have to the ancients, the Roman victory parades, the Roman parades of triumph after they win a, a big battle. And so the, the general and the victorious soldiers in the front, and they're all decked out in their finest. People are burning incense, and there's flowers and perfumes. It smells great. And then behind them are the defeated enemy. They don't smell good. They don't look good. And they are going to be executed. All right? And that's the picture being, being brought to mind here is Jesus' victory on the cross. That's the fate for Satan and his followers. Verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The iron rod comes out of Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm, verses 7 to 9. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. In the ends of the earth, your possession, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. No mistaking it. Jesus is sovereign, has all the power. God's will is done. Verse 5. I love this verse because basically it's a one-sentence summary of the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So at this point in Revelation 12, the church is born because it's after the ascension of Christ, the Holy Spirit is given, and we begin to walk, the church, in the continuing ministry of Jesus Christ here in this wilderness. The dragon isn't going to devour that baby because that baby created him and everything else and is sovereign over him and everything else. Verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness. Now the woman, instead of picturing... Israel, through whom God brings the Messiah, is a picture of the church because Christ has ascended now. 
and the church has started it's uh, the Christ has started his ministry through the church the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days so here we are we're in the wilderness right 1260 days people do a lot of things with the numbers in revelation one thing for sure that those numbers tell us is that God knows exactly when it begins and exactly when it ends. He's completely sovereign over it. God is with us in this place. It says, to a place prepared for her by God. The language used here that's translated place is the same type language that's used uh, in the Scripture that means tabernacle and temple. All right? So that's the picture. God is here with His people. And that language is meant for a reason. That's why it's there. Deuteronomy 31.6 says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or, nor, nor forsake you. And then the end of Matthew 28.20. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So we don't need to fret here in the wilderness. Verse 7-12 to a little longer passage here. Basically what this does is expand on the first part of uh, verse 4 where the dragon is, sweeps a third of the stars uh, and, and flings them to the earth. So this, this helps us understand that a little bit more. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels. Love this picture of the spiritual war going on all around us. Right? Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. Deception is the enemy's number one weapon. He was hurled to earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God. When did the kingdom of God come to earth? When Jesus came to the earth, He is the kingdom of God and the authority of His Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. That's speaking of us, by the way. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. You know, if you read that and you forget God is sovereign, that could be kind of scary. All right? So, you know, as I said, this expands on what we saw in verse 4, right? The tail sweeping the angels down to earth. Great picture. So we get a glimpse of the spiritual war, Right? And we see how God uses His created beings, Michael and His angels in this case, to accomplish His will. So God eventually and finally will vanquish Satan with a word. Poof, gone. And He could do that now. Right? But He has chosen to use His creatures, His servants, those spiritual servants and us human servants, to accomplish His will. That's really cool can be a little hard at times, but that's really cool because what God has given us the opportunity to do is be a part 
of what he's doing to accomplish his will. That is really neat. Mentioned before that when the kingdom of God comes to earth, that's Jesus, right? So this sweeping of the angels out of there, it's somewhere, could be when Jesus was conceived, I'm not sure, but you know, that's, that's when it happened, when Jesus came to the earth. And I really like Luke chapter 10. It's another picture of the same, same scene, verses 17 to 20. So Jesus has sent his disciples out, and he's given them power, right? And they can heal, they can cast out demons, and they're, they're sharing the message of the kingdom of God. And so they come back after, it's all, after they're all done, and they are so pumped up because they go, even the demons obeyed us. And Jesus' response is, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Basically, it's really no big deal that the demons obey you. That's a piece of cake. What you should rejoice in is the fact that your name is written in heaven. That's the key. So what God gives us the opportunity to do here can be amazing sometimes, but that's not what's really amazing. <laughs> what's amazing is our names are written in heaven. We need to keep that in mind. Verse 13 and 14. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the servant's reach. So Satan wants to destroy everything God has established to include the church. But God has ensured that his church will continue to expand. I like Matthew 16, 18. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So as hard as Satan tries through deception and persecution, he cannot destroy the church. The church is out of Satan's reach and will accomplish God's purposes. Verse 14 expands on verse 6 just a little bit. We see Christ protecting and providing for his bride, the church, uh, and that's what the the wings of the eagle are meant to represent. Satan has no power over us. He's going to come after us, but he has no power over us. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Okay? So we don't have power over him. Jesus won that fight. We just resist. 1260 days, I told you, you know, God's sovereign over the beginning and the end. Time, time, times, you know, time, times, and half a time, that's the same thing. Right? God is sovereign over the beginning, and he knows exactly when it's going to end. The timeline started when Jesus established the church, and it ends when he returns. That's really what we need to know. (laughs) Verse 15 and 16. Then from his mouth, Satan hadn't given up yet. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Water. So water in the scripture, particularly for the ancients, right? The way they read it. Chaos. Deception. David was overcome by the metaphorical floods recorded in Psalm 69 and Psalm 124. Basically, he's overwhelmed by life. Okay, That's another way you can think about this spew coming out, right? 
the tyranny of the urgent. Knocks us off track. Water. And God's sovereign over it all, right? So the Red Sea seemingly traps the people of God as they're leaving Egypt, right? But God opens the water. They walk across on dry land. Boom. Pharaoh and the, well, that Pharaoh didn't die, but his army is destroyed. God is sovereign over all this. And I think that's what the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth. It's meant to, at least some of what it's meant to teach us. So how do we make sure to avail ourselves, take advantage of this protection that God has brought? We're not protected from physical suffering, by the way. I don't believe that, although God does heal. Absolutely. I think primarily what the Scriptures are teaching us is that we are protected spiritually. And what that means is, if we successfully avail ourselves of the power of the Holy Spirit, the chances of being deceived go way down. One of the reasons Pastor Brett has been teaching on spiritual disciplines, right, in the Word, in prayer, fasting, community, all the things, and he's going to continue to do that, is because in practicing the spiritual disciplines, we will take advantage of, avail ourselves of the power of God's Holy Spirit. And that's what we need. We need. We certainly cannot do this on our own. Verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. That's us. So he couldn't get the baby. He can't destroy the whole church. He's coming after individuals, right? Coming after individuals, what it's telling us. He couldn't get the child. He can't destroy God's people in their entirety. So he goes after us. But we know that God is with us in the midst of these trials and tribulations. And that's the only way we can do what James tells us to do, which is consider it all joy when we encounter various trials and tribulations. It's not because we're suffering. That's not what James you know, telling us to Yay, I'm in pain. No, that's, that's not it. What we rejoice, the joy comes from knowing God and Jesus Christ whom He sent and believing and trusting in the promises of God to include the coming resurrection. Some, some translations, there's another sentence in the translation I have which says, and He stood on the sand of the sea. And some of them put that in chapter 13, which is probably where it's better, better placed, but I like the the message of that. So this is, this is the dragon. He stood on the sand of the sea, which you can understand is the seashore. You go, so what does that mean? Right? I, I don't know. Yeah, you do. Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like, the pillar, like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring who do you think that is that is jesus that's correct and jesus has his foot on land and the sea because he's sovereign over the whole thing the dragon is over here on the beach right so he has power and he has authority but it is limited and God is sovereign over it and that that's a very encouraging thing to see in the scripture so I think Revelation 12 makes it clear 
God placed us in this wilderness, and God is here with us, and He intends to use us as He accomplishes His purposes. So back to the story of Exodus. Exodus provides us an historical, actual events, series of events, using the physical circumstances of God's people to communicate a spiritual reality. And what Revelation does is show us the same historical events from the perspective of God's throne room. Put them together. That's what we're to do with the Scripture. See it as one. Put it together. We were slaves to sin just as Israel were slaves to Egypt. We all need a deliverer. We have an enemy who seeks to destroy us just as Pharaoh sought to destroy Israel. But God has prepared a place for us and actively protects us. We long for a promised land just as Israel longed for their promised land. And God promises a place where He dwells bodily with us. A place where we will know shalom, peace, and wholeness. A place where there is no sin and everyone and everything is as God intended. For the time being, we live in the wilderness and God intends to use us as He accomplishes His purposes. He's going to do that through us as we walk along in humble obedience in this place He has prepared for us. And the fulfilled promises of God are certain. I like Romans 8.30. It says, and those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Glorified is the resurrection. You notice all of those are past tense. It's done. It's a done deal. We haven't marched along the timeline yet to the point where that's going to happen, but they, there's no doubt. If you're in Christ, you're going to be glorified. You'll be resurrected. That is really neat. God's promises are not just they are just fulfilled. They are already fulfilled. It's a done deal. So here we are. Promises of God couldn't be any clearer. I don't think. <laughs> so what do we do? What do we do? And this is some of what we want to continue to talk about in our Sunday school class. I like the words of Jeremiah 29, 5-7. This is God talking to His people who've been exiled to Babylon, right? You think our political system is bad? My guess is theirs was worse. Here's what He says. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number. Do not decrease see what happens in the world when people get fearful? You can read it in the news. They stop having kids. God says, don't do that. Don't do that. Keep increasing. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Wow. That's a different perspective than railing against <laughs> the place where we have, we have been... Uh, where we are, right? Um, let's see what else God says about what we're to do here. Verses you might be familiar with. Micah 6, 8, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, as you go along in life every day. Okay, I paraphrased a little there, but that's what it's saying. Make disciples 
baptize, teach, and I'm with you always, all the way to the end. James 1.27, care for the widows and orphans and keep yourself unstained by the world. 1 Thessalonians 5.16-18, rejoice, pray, give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. That's one I like when somebody's asking, I'm trying to figure out God's will for my life. I go, well, are you doing that? Because I'll be honest with you, I don't always do that either, but uh, you know, that's pretty straightforward. A few things to take away. We're not here for ourselves or for anything this world offers. Got to keep reminding ourselves of that. We get trapped by things here. In Christ, we are to give of ourselves for the sake of others. There are some people I struggle to be around, as I was telling you earlier. In those moments, uh, I have, on occasion, um, just imagined Jesus looking at me with those blazing eyes and a little tear coming down his cheek. And (laughs) he says, I created that person. And I died for them. And you can't even spend time around them. You can't love them for my sake. Needless to say, that's a little convicting. And that tear on his cheek is for me and my hard heart. Thank God we're forgiven in Christ. I think of you know Romans 7, Paul's like, gosh, I do these things I don't want to do. I, ah, Who's going to save me? Thank God for Jesus Christ. So I go before God. He tells us we can do this. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. doesn't hold anything against us. Romans 8, 1 comes you know, right after Paul's struggle in Romans 7. says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We need to keep that in mind. So God is building His church, expanding His kingdom in this wilderness. The building blocks are people. And He wants to use us in the process every day. My wife reads about five times as much as I do. Um, She forwarded me an article a couple of weeks ago off of uh, desiringgod.org. And I thought there were some pretty good things here. So I've pulled a few of them out. I'll read those to you as we prepare to close here. It says, life as usual, many will come to realize was never life as usual. When Christ returns, many will discover too late that they lived within a dream. The world-ending return of Jesus will be as the world-ending days of Noah. Busy people unaware, going about life as usual. The immediate seemed most urgent, most real, until the rain began to fall. They derived what is ultimate about life from the ordinary experiences of life, a fatal mistake. Unlike the citizens of this world, Noah lived ready. He lived prepared. He believed God that the waters would come. As decades multiplied, Noah kept working, kept proclaiming, kept resisting the temptation to stop and return to life as usual. Jesus calls this world to prepare for him. Matthew 24, 44, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour we do not expect. 
For us to prepare is not to build a boat in our backyards. You can do that if you like, but talking about something different here. We're to go along in life doing the things God has prepared for us to do. All the while looking and waiting for Christ's return. That's the perspective for life. We live mindful of eternal souls. We live expecting rain. We live in reverent fear of God. What does the world see us building? Us, the church. Buildings? Is there anything in our lives that can only be explained by our faith in Christ and His certain return? Are we ready for His return? Are we walking in the works God has prepared for us? What works specifically? What are we doing? How do we walk together every day as a church in a world that seems more and more broken? Are we serious about provoking that passage in Matthew 10, 24, and 25? Spur one another, basically poke one another. Provoke one another to love and good deeds. Are we serious about that? So those are some more questions that I think we should consider as a church together. In Sunday school, small groups, over coffee, in one another's homes. Today we have the privilege of celebrating communion. And we talk about the promises of God without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we would have no hope. So this morning we're going to remember the sacrifice, if the servers could come up. A sacrifice that included Jesus' body, human body, and Jesus' spilled blood, the blood required to pay for our sins. And a sacrifice that included Jesus on the cross as the Father placed all the sin on him and crushed them. And he bore the wrath of God, a wrath we could never stand. Only God can survive the wrath of God. That's why God had to come down and take on the form of a human. There's no other way. 